This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is turning away from incorrect traditions. In the first half, Ruth L. Renland and Ed Adams share their addresses, The Power to Change, and A New Tradition. Then in the second half, Lloyd D. Newell speaks on Walk in Newness of Life. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm delighted to be here with you today. I appreciate that beautiful music singing praises to our Heavenly Father for the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The world you were raised in and live in today is full of superheroes. They're on movie and television screens. They fill the pages of comic books and consume much of our popular culture. Now, perhaps you have engaged in conversations with friends trying to identify which is your favorite superhero and what superpower you would most like to have. Maybe you'd like to be Elastigirl with the ability to reach around corners and hug a room full of people. Now, maybe Superman is more your style with superhuman vision, agility, and speed. Who couldn't use that most days? Well, these characters and their powers are, of course, fictional. But have you wondered what your spiritual superpower is? You can have a superpower greater than any fictional power ever conceived. You can have God's power in your life, the ultimate and very real superpower. President Russell M. Nelson in October 2019 General Conference taught that God's power flows from priesthood covenants and that understanding this will change your life. God's power, the power of godliness, is the power to change. With God's help, we can change from women and men driven by carnal desires and selfish concerns to holy women and holy men prepared to enter the kingdom of God. We change little by little by making and keeping priesthood covenants. Priesthood covenants are the way we receive the Savior's Atonement into our lives. Let's consider for a moment the power we receive through the covenant of baptism and the sacramental covenants. When we are baptized, we covenant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and be members of His Church. Our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ enlarges when we prepare for and worthily partake of the sacrament. Prayers offered on the sacrament each week help us understand that partaking of the bread and drinking the water is more than renewing our covenant of baptism. We witness anew that we are willing to take upon us His name, always remember Him, and keep the commandments that He's given us. When we make this covenant, we have this promise that we may always have His Spirit to be with us. We can receive the power and encouragement to change as we witness to God our Father that we are willing to take upon us and take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. When we take upon us the name of Jesus Christ, we identify ourselves with Him as His disciple. We link ourselves with His name. We link ourselves, and linking that identity with us helps us change as we take on His attributes and characteristics. Let me explain how this change can happen with an example involving a man who changed his attitude and behavior 
because his name became linked with that of Russell M. Nelson. Not too long ago, Elder Renland and I had an opportunity to attend a special meeting that was hosted by the President of the University of Utah. A special position was being created in the Department of Surgery that was being funded by significant financial donations from many individuals. Such an academic position is called an endowed chair. This endowed chair was designated for the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery and was being named for Russell M. Nelson and his late wife, Dancel W. Nelson. The large financial endowment of this position, or chair, ensures that whoever is named to hold the chair will have funding for his or her research efforts into perpetuity. It's a great honor and benefit for the one who is appointed to the chair and an honor for the one after whom it is named. On the evening of this official creation of the endowed chair in cardiothoracic surgery, the first person appointed to the special position, Craig M. H. Selzman, addressed the assembled group. Dr. Selzman is a renowned professor of surgery at the University of Utah and the chairman of cardiothoracic surgery. He is a wise, mature man who is not of our faith. His remarks were enlightening and demonstrated a profound respect for Dr. Russell Nelson and Dr. Selzman's own humility. Dr. Selzman explained that a few days earlier he had operated all day. In the evening before going home, he returned to the intensive care unit to check on the patients he would operated on earlier in the day. After examining one of the patients, Dr. Salesman realized that this patient needed to go back to the operating room. He was frustrated. He was displeased with the situation. He was disappointed he was going to spend another long night in the hospital. Dr. Salesman explained that when he is frustrated and unhappy, his surgical team sometimes knows it, and it affects them too. At that point, instead of yielding to his emotions and frustrated attitude, he reflected that he was going to be appointed to the Russell M. Nelson chair in cardiothoracic surgery later that week. He contemplated that Russell Nelson had been known as a surgeon who was always a gentleman. He was always in control of his emotions, always in control of his operating room, and always professional and kind and caring to his operating team. Dr. Salesman thought that since he would be holding a position named after Dr. Nelson, he should try to follow Dr. Nelson's example. Dr. Salesman decided to change his attitude. He calmed himself and notified the operating team in a caring manner. Then he went into the operating room in control of his emotions, and the interactions and outcome were better as a result. As Dr. Selzman spoke, I was struck by how just the very thought of linking his name to Russell Nelson's name caused him to change both his attitude and behavior. Going forward, Dr. Selzman said he would try to be more like Dr. Nelson. Perhaps we should reflect on what can and should happen to us as we link ourselves with the name of our Savior. As we do, we too can change. We will gain power, superhuman power, godly power, to turn toward our Savior and become more like Him. 
We can have the power to resist temptation, to be protected from the evil one, power to accept and fulfill challenging callings, power to discern truth from error, power to make critical decisions in our lives that will keep us on the covenant path, power to find joy regardless of our circumstances, power to sort through life's many activities and choose those things that are higher and holier. I am so grateful for priesthood ordinances and covenants that endow us with power to spiritually survive this mortal existence and allow us to change and become more like our Savior. As we begin to change and take on His characteristics, we will also experience in our life the fruits of His Atonement—greater peace, greater charity, greater love, and gratitude for our Savior Jesus Christ. I know this is true. This is the mighty miracle that is offered to each of us through Priest of Covenants, the power to change and become more like God. And I say this in the name of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Ruth L. Renland, and now we'll hear from Ed Adams for his address, A New Tradition. Devotional has been a part of the Brigham Young University campus life for many years. They were first instituted by Carl G. Mazur and early on were offered on a daily basis. By the 1920s, devotionals were three times a week. Although the number of devotionals per week has changed over the history of the university, their importance to the campus community has remained constant. Carl G. Mazur's term as president ended in the 1880s, so we know it has been at least that long that these devotionals have been a part of our campus. Some years ago, I was in a meeting with former Academic Vice President John Tanner. We were discussing some matters when a devotional became part of the conversation. Vice President Tanner mentioned the importance of the BYU devotion as one of the few experiences on campus we do as a community, and we do it communally. What a rich tradition, and one that brings us together in body and spirit. Traditions have the ability to bind us generationally. Most often we associate traditions with holidays and celebrations. But they can simply be the handing down of statements, beliefs, legends, customs, and information that moves from generation to generation. This can happen by word of mouth or by practice. Defining the word tradition varies by academic disciplines. I'm simply going to define it here broadly for discussion purposes. For my purpose, it will encompass the idea of continued accepted norms, patterns, or customs. My wife, Gwen, and I recently returned from New Zealand. She spent her teenage years growing up in Wellington. We accompanied other members of her family who were returning back home to New Zealand for the first time in over 30 years. Toward the end of our trip, we were making our way from the Bay of Plenty area toward Auckland. En route, we planned on attending church in the city of Taranga. There was no particular reason for selecting this place other than it was halfway between our two destinations. While we were attending a Taranga ward, we met a brother Tata, who invited us to follow him after church to a neighborhood within the city. We followed him to the gates of a Maori marae. A marae is a communal or sacred place which serves religious and social purposes in Maori culture. It doesn't have to be a building. It can be an open space. To the Maori, the marae is just important to them as their homes. He invited us through the gates and into a courtyard. After a brief moment there, we walked over to the building, took off our shoes, and were invited in. We partook of a ceremony where much of the ceremony was spoken in Maori. 
Brother Tata then explained to us that as a young missionary and a future apostle, Matthew Cowley began his mission at the location of this marae. He told us David O. McKay had come to this marae when a New Zealand temple was dedicated, and that he brought other general authorities with him. Brother Tata explained that his ancestors had joined the church in the 1880s and that he was a fifth-generation member of the church. His children were seventh-generation members of the church. I have a fascination with family history, so I asked his distant cousin, Brother Koryu, who was with him, if he knew of those ancestors who had joined the church. He said, I know them all and can name them all. Impressed, I asked, you can name seven generations of ancestors? He said, I can name 27 generations of ancestors. Can't you? (laughs) Astonished, I responded, you can name 27 generations of ancestors? He said, yes, I shared it with you in the ceremony, all the way back to the time when my ancestors came to New Zealand. After some more questions, I later learned that Maoris have a rich oral tradition where they share their genealogy as part of ceremony and ritual. And what a great and beneficial tradition. The cultural value of knowing their ancestors links directly with the gospel and the admonition of Malachi, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Elder Richard G. Scott shared in a general conference where traditions and customs are in harmony with his teachings, they should be cherished and followed to preserve your culture and heritage. One of my favorite plays and movies is Fiddler on the Roof. It opens with the main character, Tevya, introducing the audience to his village, Anatevka, and to his way of life. And he does this by singing a rousing song called Tradition. Just before Tevya is about to go into song, he provides a background on life in his village. He says, Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl that shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know, but it's a tradition. Some traditions are beneficial. Some bind us to past generations and provide nostalgic notions for us, while some others are just whimsical or fun. Ohio State University has a tradition called the Mirror Lake Jump-In. Every year in late November, Buckeye fans gather a large pond called Mirror Lake just before the annual Michigan-Ohio State football game. The purpose of this activity is to jump in frozen water to awaken the spirit of legendary coach Woody Hayes so the Ohio State Buckeyes can beat the Michigan Wolverines. This past year, as the jump time temperatures hovered in the mid-30s, 8,000 Buckeye faithful gathered for the annual ritual. It's a popular event where you get that rare occasion of plunging into icy water so your team can beat a rival team. (laughs) One student commented the water was five times colder than you could imagine. Another student said it's not that bad once you get past the needles and your entire body going numb. (laughs) Physicians might suggest that this reaction represents early stages of hypothermia. My favorite part of this tradition are the advisories sent by the Ohio State University Office of Student Life to inform participants of the value of having a, quote, designated dry person, unquote, <laughs> available to stand by to hold your valuables. <laughs> Some traditionals are fun and whimsical, and in unique ways work to unite people. Some, however, take us down unproductive paths and can even contribute to justifying sin. The Lamanites provide us with an example of generations of poor choices made because they followed the traditions of their fathers. 
Because of their traditions, the Lamanites long remained in a state of ignorance. They knew little of Christ and of his teachings. They developed a hatred of their brethren because of misconceptions handed down from generation to generation. There were efforts to reclaim the Lamanites, and missionary work was carried out by the Nephites. These missionaries not only had to teach the Lamanites correct principles, but they had to convince them of the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers. Note again the incorrectness of their traditions. King Benjamin punctuated this when he said, And we should have been like unto our brethren, the Lamanites, who knew nothing concerning these things, or even do not believe them when they are taught because of the traditions of their fathers, which are not correct. Cultural geographers study how traditional ways of life intersect modern society and how adaptations may be made. A simple example of this change is illustrated when suburban cities encroach or encompass traditional farms or small villages. Traditional modes of rural society are changed as agrarian life transitions to accommodate urban norms and new ways of life. These adjustments and transitions also occur when individuals move into a new place or culture. We may find we have to make a change from our established patterns. This has happened to many of you who have served foreign missions, gone on a study abroad, or simply moved across the country to come and live in a new place like Utah. A new place can cause us to reorient our thinking and cause us to change our established way of doing things. After I completed my doctoral studies in Ohio, we moved our family to the West Texas city of San Angelo. Neither my wife nor I had ever lived in Texas. This was a new place and a new adventure. It was mid-August when we pulled our moving van up in front of our new home. It had been vacant for a short time, and the interior of the house was a mess. The lawn sprinklers had been turned off for some time, and it doesn't take long for a lawn to die in the West Texas afternoon sun. With the help of members of our new ward, we were able to get into our home. And then I turned my attention to our lawn. It was toward the end of the day, and dusk was setting in. As I surveyed our new yard, I glanced over the shrubs and trees and then cast my eyes toward the pitiful-looking lawn. As I looked down, I saw something strange. There was this weed running across my lawn. I grabbed hold and started to pull it up, and it kept going. I pulled hard, and as it came up, it was about four feet long. As I pulled up, another appeared, and I pulled that one up. I was beginning to build a tidy pile of these weeds. I soon discovered they were all over the place. I pulled up two more, and my next-door neighbor, who was a retired Air Force officer with a slight Texas accent, said, Son, why are you all pulling up your grass? <laughs> now, have you ever had those moments where simply no answer will suffice for something you're doing? <laughs> this was one of those moments. I stood there looking at these long strange and thinking, So, this is grass. My previous conception of grass changed. My lifetime experience told me that grass consisted of straight blades shooting straight up from the ground. My neighbor then told me about St. Augustine grass. By the time he got done, I realized I had to change everything I thought he knew about lawns and lawn care, and for that matter, grass. I wouldn't be sodding my yard here. I would have to lay in tufts of this grass, and they would grow together. Watering would be different. Mowing would be different. Care would be different. Excited with my new discovery, I ran in, called my wife, and said, Hey, check this out. This is grass. <laughs> we were in a new place, and now we had a new way of life. Well, next year, BYU will be in a new place. Next year, we enter a new phase at BYU as we take the national stage as an independent football team and move to a new conference for other sports. A major network is promising national coverage for football, and we will be competing in a conference which is home to other religious-based universities and colleges. For many of us, we have spent a lifetime cheering our teams and our athletes. 
At the same time, the notion of booing, jeering, heckling, and even yelling at our opponents and referees entered into the national psyche of being a fan. It may have even felt like it was justified behavior because this behavior has been popularized in movies and reinforced in national televised sporting events. In some college towns, fan behavior has become unruly. Miles Brand, president of the NCAA, stated in a column, there is something very wrong taking place in sports, including college sports. It isn't universal. It doesn't happen all the time. But it happens often enough to suggest that we, the fans, are losing our way. For a culture that holds dear the concepts of fair play, civility, honest effort, in short sportsmanship, intercollegiate athletics at times sure has a strange way of showing its commitment to such values. My academic area deals with mass communications, journalism, public relations, and advertising. In its most basic form, mass communications is primarily concerned with the differential impact of messages transmitted by various mass media. One of the pioneering researchers in our field is George Gallup. He began as a campus newspaper editor at the University of Iowa in the 1920s. And after receiving his PhD, he ventured into advertising research. He became a pioneer in survey sampling techniques, and his research methods became the foundation for the Gallup poll. One aspect of mass communication research is the study of public opinion, public perception, and media messages. Over the years, basic research in the mass communication field has found a relationship between group behavior in the public sphere and public perception of that group. A recent church press release on religious values found on LDS.org states, our public interaction reveals much about who we are as a people, what values we uphold, and what kind of society we want to live in. I came across a sportsmanship statement from a school district in New Jersey. This statement advocated a new standard for their schools. It was one that suggested that they should welcome opposing teams with banners and posters, applaud the opposing teams at introductions, and not boo or heckle opposing teams or referees. This is truly an example of relearning fan participation at sporting events. In a small way, I experienced the spirit of sportsmanship while attending a BYU basketball game. My son and I were attending a game in the Marriott Center in 2009. The crowd was sparse with Christmas less than a week away. The opponent was Eastern Washington University. Nothing our opponent shot went in. Every shot was off the backboard, around the rim, or in and out. Every once in a while, I glanced at the scoreboard and I saw 9-0, 21-0. In fact, our BYU basketball team went ahead 33-0. I was beginning to find myself conflicted. I was thrilled we were winning, and yet my heart sank for these poor athletes from eastern Washington. I began privately pleading for them to make a shot. They were about 800 miles from home. It was just before Christmas in an opposing arena, and the ball wouldn't drop through the hoop for them. Then suddenly they scored, and the Marriott Center erupted in spontaneous applause. I was never happier to be a Cougar as the fans began cheering eastern Washington on. We didn't stop cheering our team, but we were also cheering for our struggling opponent. Unfortunately, and all too often, I have the opposite experience when attending sporting events or athletic competitions. Willard Hershey, talking in a May 2000 devotional, said, Do BYU fans lose something as a result of poor sportsmanship? Yes. As we embrace the behavior of the secular world, we lose our distinctiveness regarding the sacred. More important, we individually lose the companionship of the Holy Spirit. Elder Richard G. Scott said, quote, You may ask, how can one determine when a tradition is in conflict with the teachings of the Lord and should be abandoned? That is not easily done. 
I have found how difficult it is as I work to overcome some of my own incorrect traditions. Yet recognizing the need to do it is a major step towards success. Customs and traditions become an inherent part of us. They're not easy to evaluate objectively. Carefully study the scriptures and the counsel of prophets to understand how the Lord wants you to live. Then evaluate each part of your life and make any adjustments needed. Unquote. There is a new trend occurring in some colleges in America. There are football fans vying for the title of friendliest fans. Booing is discouraged by some school, and visiting guests are invited to tailgating parties, and opposing fans are welcomed by the home team fans. A 2000 book called Huskerville chronicles the fan behavior at the University of Nebraska Cornhuskers, which has a long-standing tradition for fan friendliness. The author begins with the following. I remember when Florida State got the chance to come up and play Nebraska and get on the map, and when they upset the Huskers early on, the people in the stadium gave them a standing ovation when they left the field. As Florida State head coach Bobby Bowden jogged off the field, he saw something he had never seen before. Thousands of fans standing on their feet, clapping and saluting the victorious opponent. The book goes on to tell the school who respects the efforts of opposing team. One fan states it this way, being a Husker fan as we see it is about being Nebraskan. It says something about who we are. Huskervillers, as they like to call themselves, say it's based on a spirit of neighborliness. In a 1998 regional conference, President Gordon B. Hinckley shared the following, quote, The Lord expects us to be Latter-day Saints. That isn't just an appendage phrase on the end of the name of the church. It signifies something of tremendous importance. He expects us to show the love of God by the way we conduct our lives. He expects us, as those who have taken upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ, to walk in His way, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, to go the second mile. He expects us as his children to reach out to those around us, not only to members of the church, but to others. As sure and as certain as the sunrise in the morning, we Latter-day Saints and members of this great church of the Lord should reach out in a spirit of neighborliness and helpfulness, unquote. In the spirit of neighborliness cited in the aforementioned book, and in light of neighborliness as mentioned by President Hinckley, and as we understand the mission of this great institution, and as our athletic teams in our new conference, shouldn't our fans be the friendliest anywhere? Wouldn't it be nice to have a new tradition where opponents come into our stadiums, arenas, and center and are welcomed with signs and placards? Wouldn't it be nice to respectfully applaud victorious opponents for their efforts as they walk off the field or court? Wouldn't it be nice to extend a hand of friendship and fellowship to fans of visiting schools? Wouldn't it be nice... And wouldn't it help fulfill our campus mission if opponents and the national media proclaim BYU as the toughest and friendliest place to play a game? Now there's a tradition we're celebrating. Elder Holland, in a previous devotional talk, referenced the same fiddler on the roof moment I did when he said, quote, When we come to BYU, we take our position on the roof with violin in hand, and we declare to the rest of the world, tradition, our tradition, BYU tradition, and that doesn't just mean ringing the victory bell after a ball game or lighting the Y at homecoming, as fun as rewarding as those lesser traditions are. Indeed, lighting the Y doesn't mean a thing, doesn't justify the electricity it takes to do it, if the meaning behind that mountaintop symbol, the spirit of the Y, is not manifest in each of our lives. Unquote. Now, I've provided an illustration of changing an old traditional way of fan participation at sporting events, and in essence, have suggested a new tradition. Elder Scott counseled that we should all take inventory of our traditions in our lives that would lead us away from feeling the Spirit. 
and make the necessary adjustments to bring our lives in accord with the way our Savior Jesus Christ would have us live. When I was young, my parents were faced with changing long-standing religious traditions of their families. My parents moved from the rural farmland of Ohio to the industrial city of Flint, Michigan, a new place. My father found a mechanic in the car dealership where he worked, who wasn't rude, didn't smoke, didn't drink or swear. He found him to be very friendly and helpful, and he wondered why. This man told my father it was because of his church. My life was forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ when my parents invited two young men to our home. I remember the day they drove up in their American Motors Rambler. That's a car, by the way. And walked up to our house. They sat on the couch and pulled out a large flannel board and proceeded to teach us the gospel. My brother and I sat on the floor and watched as the missionaries placed cutouts of people and other figures on this flannel board. We watched these flannel board cutout characters slowly curl down, and we snickered and laughed as they fell to the floor. My father had to nudge us with his foot to keep us quiet. I had no idea that that moment was the beginning of a change that would forever affect our beliefs, our way of life, and our previous whole-held notions and traditions. Life changed for us. We began attending church a couple of days a week. New terminology entered into our life. I went to something called primary and attended classes called CTR, Target Tears and Blazers. There were things called sacrament gems and two-and-a-half-minute talks. We went to progressive dinners, bazaars, and ice cream socials. There were things called road shows and golden green balls. Even these traditions in church have changed over time. But the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ remains a constant. My family had to rethink our priorities, rethink who we were, and change the way we did things. We made covenants with the Lord as we realigned our lives with this newfound gospel. My life was forever changed and set on a different trajectory than where it could have headed. As Elder Holland and Elder Scott suggest, let us all, both personally and collectively, look at our traditions and establish the way we do things and make sure they are in line with how the Lord would have us live and, if necessary, establish new traditions. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is turning away from incorrect traditions. We've just heard from Ed Adams. After the break, we'll return with Lloyd D. Newell for Walk in Newness of Life. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is turning away from incorrect traditions. Next is Lloyd D. Newell, BYU Professor of Church History and Doctrine and the Voice of Music and the Spoken Word at the time of this address, titled Walk in Newness of Life. Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. It's nice to be with you. I've been looking forward to this for some time. I can't think of a more wonderful time of the year than Easter. And also on a personal note, it's nice to be here with my beautiful wife and two of our other children who are with us tonight. And for another reason, it's nice for me to have more than three minutes. I only get three minutes Sunday morning. <laughs> That's one, but two, tonight, I hope I can say something that's deep in my heart. 
On Sunday morning, there is a limitation on what I can say because the message I write has to be more non-denominational and and universal and general. And so tonight, I can say what I really want to say about the Savior and about Easter and about our ability and the promise of change. Nothing is more beautiful than the beginning of a new life. I cried and rejoiced at the births of each of our four children. A new baby is so beautiful, so sweet, so tender. At such moments, the veil between mortality and eternity seems almost transparent, and the love of God is unmistakable. Likewise, I rejoice and get a little teary every time I witness a renewal of spiritual life. How beautiful, how sweet, how tender it is to see hearts changed, the lost found, and the blind restored to sight. Though we may not understand how it happens, we know why, because God loves His children. Rebirth really is as precious as birth. It seems fitting, then, that the Lord would use birth as a metaphor to describe the change that is made possible by the Atonement of Jesus Christ. We may smile when we read Nicodemus's bewildered question, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? But in our own way, we have all wondered the same thing. Can I really change? After all the mistakes I've made, can I really begin again? Is there hope for me and for my loved ones? We've all fallen short and longed for another chance, a fresh start, a new beginning. We've all wished we could rewind time and try again. We all have weaknesses that may at times feel like an unshakable part of our nature. We hear the expression, there are no guarantees in life. But here is a promise you can count on no matter where you are or what you have done. We can change. We can walk in newness of life. That is the central message of the gospel, the doctrine of salvation, the whole point and purpose of life. In fact, it could be argued that this sublime truth is the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to proclaim. Whenever God speaks to man through his prophets or directly, his main message seems to be either that we need to change or that we can change. My purpose tonight is to affirm just how anxiously our Heavenly Father wants us to believe that we can change that we can believe in His Atonement, that we can become new creatures. Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love, and I testify that He is the ultimate expression of God's love. Another equally powerful expression of that love is found in the many varied ways in which He urges and encourages us to believe in His Atonement and access its power to change our lives. When the Apostle Paul encouraged the Romans and each of us to walk in newness of life, he was speaking from first-hand experience. He knew what it was like to be born again. He was forever changed after his experience on the road to Damascus. That doesn't mean he was perfect or never sinned again. But something was certainly different after that experience that could justifiably be considered a rebirth. He was a new man 
just as zealous and committed as a Christian as he had ever been as a persecutor. But now he walked with a power and light and spirit that came from coming alive unto God through Jesus Christ, as he said it. When he says, even so we also should walk in newness of life, he is inviting us to walk with him in the converted newness he found in Christ. Such references to new life, along with the Lord's frequent invitations to be born again, suggest something of the magnitude of change He has in mind for us. This isn't a tweak or a touch-up. The Atonement doesn't propose some minor alterations. This is a reset. It goes even deeper than changing our actions, our nature, Our disposition, our whole worldview and mindset become different, deeper, higher, holier. But the magnitude of the change required should not discourage us. Heavenly Father knew from the beginning that sending his children into mortality surrounded by opposition meant that we would slip up, we would fall and falter and sometimes not get it right. But he bids us to take this walk anyway because it is the only way we can continue to progress and ultimately become like Him. It was never part of God's plan that we should stay the same. The Atonement of Jesus Christ saves us not by taking us back to where we once were, but by taking us to places beyond our wildest dreams. By accepting the Father's plan and rejecting Satan's, we recognize both the possibility that we would falter and the promise that we could progress. And we agreed with the Father that the chance of the latter was worth the risk of the former. So you see, the rigorous change required by the gospel of Jesus Christ is not meant to be disheartening or exhausting. It's exciting and exhilarating. The plan of salvation is the ultimate adventure. Perhaps you don't think of yourself as adventurous, but you are. Sure, you could have chosen the easy path, Lucifer's assurance that in exchange for your agency, he would make sure no one failed. But that was not for you. You stepped into the great unknown of mortality. You did it because you had faith in the Son of God and in the Father's plan for your happiness. Your testimony was what helped you conquer then, and it will help you conquer now. Our relationship with God is one of separation and restoration, of estrangement and reconciliation, of wandering and returning, of picking ourselves up where and when we have fallen, accepting the heavenly power of the Savior's love and atonement, and trying again to live in harmony with higher ideals rather than lower impulses. And let us remember that true conversion— Walking in newness of life is a lifelong process. Paul was not done after his transformative experience. Even he had to stay with it, day after day, striving in righteousness. The Atonement works within each of us over time, little by little, day by day. That is why, in His loving mercy, the Lord commanded us to take the sacrament weekly. He knew that we would regularly need to repent remember, and renew our covenants. Rebirth, then, is not so much a moment as a mindset, an ongoing experience of the heart, the gradual accumulation of countless righteous choices built up 
over a lifetime. It is a daily decision to sincerely accept the Lord's invitation to discipleship. As he said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The path of discipleship becomes clearer the longer we stay on it. It is a process that takes patience. Our efforts and desires are known to the Lord. He sees our steps of faith and obedience and perseverance, however small and imperceptible they may seem at times. He knows our heart, and we know enough of his heart to know that he loves us perfectly and continuously. God often refers to us as his little children, and he will patiently work with us as we falteringly try to emulate him, just as we do with our own children. Elder Neil A. Maxwell lovingly reminded us, listen to what Elder Maxwell says, Our perfect father does not expect us to be perfect children, yet. He had only one such child. Meanwhile, therefore, sometimes with smudges on our cheeks, dirt on our hands, and shoes untied, stammeringly but smilingly, we present God with a dandelion, as if it were an orchid or a rose. If for now the dandelion is the best we have to offer, he receives it knowing what we may later place on the altar. It is good to remember how young we are spiritually. That's the end of the quote. The purpose of life is to grow up physically and spiritually. To do this, we must be tutored, identify our shortcomings, make course corrections, and get back more fully on the upward path of discipleship. Speaking of heaven, our post-mortal estate, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, said this, Remember, the heavens will not be filled with those who never made mistakes, but with those who recognized that they were off course and who corrected their ways to get back in the light of gospel truth. End quote. Of course, our Heavenly Father would prefer that we not commit sin in the first place, and the scriptures contain many warnings against seeking happiness in wickedness. But he also knew that we would make mistakes and would need a Savior. He knows how great the distance is between where we are and where he is. And for that reason, he wants us to believe we can really change. So the question is not whether we will trip and fall, falter and stumble, but rather how we will respond when we do. Will we pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and try again? Or will we give in to despair and disillusionment? Will we recognize our need for the Savior, for renewal and redemption from this fallen state? Or will we surrender to the pull of the world and the allurements of the adversary? Elder Bruce C. Hafen put it this way, If you have problems in your life, don't assume there is something wrong with you. Struggling with those problems is at the very core of life's purposes. As we draw close to God, He will show us our weaknesses and through them make us wiser, stronger. If you're seeing more of your weaknesses, that just might mean you're moving nearer to God, not farther away. It's the end of the quote. In some ways, however, seeing our weaknesses is the easy part. The hard part is seeing a way out of them. 
We can recite the scriptures that speak of a mighty change of heart, of putting off the natural man to become a saint, and weak things being made strong. But do we really know what that means? And do we really believe it enough to actually experience the mighty change ourselves? Knowing of our tendency to see things only as they are and not as they could be, the Lord seems to be using every possible means to teach us, persuade us, and lovingly convince us that we can change. But no matter what road we've been walking until now, we can indeed walk in newness of life. The events we celebrate at Easter time provide an excellent example. It's surely no coincidence that the Savior's sacrifice and resurrection, complete with the promise of renewed physical and spiritual life, occurred during springtime. Who can witness the emergence of colorful blossoms on limbs that seem so dead and barren all winter, without marveling at the earth's miraculous regeneration every year? The arrival of spring after a long, cold winter is a bold declaration that rebirth is always possible. It's an annual reaffirmation of our hope in new life and renewed life, a sweet and tender assurance of hope centered in Jesus Christ. I suppose it shouldn't surprise us that the master teacher uses the largest visual aid in history, the world he created to teach us about the Atonement. Truly, all things are created and made to bear record of Him, including the marked change from winter to spring. It almost makes you feel sorry for those people who live in Florida. Almost. When John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness, preparing the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah, he quoted this passage from the writings of Isaiah. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. Why this passage? What do valleys and mountains have to do with the Savior's impending ministry and atonement? It seems unlikely that John was talking only about geography or topography. Perhaps these metaphors tell us more about Jesus' mission than we might realize. It's as if he were saying, change is coming. Think of something that seems permanent to you, like a mountain. That mountain can be flattened. That's the degree of change that is possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are there things in your life that seem insurmountable? They can be overcome. Does your life seem rough or unstable? Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, all of that can be made smooth. Anything can change. You can change. While life may be unpredictable and even unfair at times, Jesus Christ came to set it all right. Though you may have made mistakes that took you down a path you did not intend, Jesus Christ came to straighten it all out. He came to change things, darkness to light, evil to goodness, sickness to health, sorrow to joy, despair to hope. Promises of change permeate the scriptures. Through Christ, sins that are red as blood can become white as snow. Death can lead to new life. Captives can be delivered. The blind can see and the deaf can hear. Those who mourn can be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst can be filled. The meek 
can be exalted and the proud made low. So much of Christ's mortal ministry reinforces the doctrine of new life and new birth. Every time he healed someone who was lame or leprous, for example, not only was he giving that person a new life, but he was also teaching us about his ability to heal us spiritually. Consider the man sick with palsy, whose friends lowered him through the roof of the house where Jesus was in hopes that the Savior would heal him. Obvious to everyone was the man's physical ailment, but clear only to the Savior were his spiritual needs, and that was what he chose to address first. Son, thy sins are forgiven thee. He said to the disturbance of the observing Pharisees who immediately accused Jesus of blasphemy, the master's response revealed one of his purposes in healing the sick, that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way. Of course, the Savior was interested in alleviating physical suffering, but he knew well that this was not his greatest power or most important mission. What he wanted most was to offer spiritual renewal, the transformation of the inner man and woman. He saw acts of physical healing as a way to impress upon our minds that he has power to heal us spiritually, to give us new life. Everything the Savior said or did, all of the changes he wrought, leads to the most important change of all, the one that occurs when a human soul putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint. If you ever doubt that God can continue to love you when you have stumbled and made mistakes, if you ever question whether it is truly possible that God knows you individually, Follow the example of Nephi, who said, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. It is enough to know and trust that Heavenly Father and our Savior love us. The love of God is the most powerful force in the universe. Our Father loves us with a perfect, constant, and encompassing love. If we allow it, his love will transform us. Elder Russell M. Nelson sums it all up with this powerful witness. He said, we can change our behavior. Our very desires can change. How? There is only one way. True change, permanent change, can come only through the healing, cleansing, and enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. He loves you, each one of you. He allows you to access his power as you keep his commandments eagerly, earnestly, and exactly. It is that simple and certain. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of change. That's the end of the quote. Now, most of us are familiar with Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. In this classic tale of redemption, the ghost of Jacob Marley, weighed down by the chains of selfishness he forged in life, visits his former business partner, the mean-spirited Ebenezer Scrooge, to warn him about the consequences of his miserly ways. You all know the story. 
Because Marley sets in motion a series of ghostly visitations, all is not lost for Scrooge, who sees his past, present, and future and undergoes a change of heart. This heartwarming story resonates with us because it reminds us so powerfully that anyone can change. Even a callous old man who literally defines grumpy selfishness. If there's hope for Scrooge, there's hope for all of us. But there is a tragic aspect to this story that never fully gets resolved and has always bothered me. When you hear the word Scrooge, what do you think of? Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines Scrooge as a miserly person. Not a person who was once miserly, but who, when given a second chance, chose to reform his life and share his wealth with those less fortunate. Just a miserly person. Even though everyone knows how Scrooge's story ends, his name has nevertheless entered our consciousness and our dictionary as the embodiment of what he once was, not what he ultimately became. The poor Scrooge is immortalized for his abandoned past, not his reformed future. Now, perhaps the way we remember fictional characters in a Christmas story is of little consequence. However, the way we think of our friends, neighbors, and family members is vital. Do we sometimes define people in terms of who they have been rather than who they are or who they can become? Our ability to accept change in our own lives is tied, I believe, to our ability to accept it in the lives of others. When Jesus instituted the sacrament among the Nephites, he taught his disciples that they should not cast out the unworthy or even the unrepentant with encompassing love and an eternal perspective. The Lord exhorted his disciples to pray for those people and continue to minister to them. For ye know not, is what he said, for ye know not but what they will return and repent and come unto me with full purpose of heart, and I shall heal them. Not long ago, I was at the temple when an ordinance worker approached me to say hello. He said, you don't recognize me, do you? I glanced at his name badge, and memories started to form in my mind. He reminded me that he was, uh, as he said it, quote, a rebel in high school. I began to slowly remember him. I went to junior high and high school with him. I had not seen him since high school graduation many decades earlier. With some chagrin, he acknowledged that he had been wild and wayward during those adolescent years. But now, here he was, nearly four decades later, an ordinance worker in the temple. He had a spiritual glow and a warm happiness about him that inspired me and touched my heart. I thought once more how grateful I am for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of change and rebirth that empowers and enables us to walk in newness of life. Truly, nothing is more beautiful than seeing new life and renewed life. That hope and promise is centered in the Savior's encompassing love. May this Easter season reaffirm to our hearts and minds that lives can change, that people can change. They can even be 
reborn. Every time we see a spring flower, every time we read of the miracles of the Savior, and every time we see the miracle of spiritual rebirth in a loved one, let us receive the message our loving Heavenly Father is trying to send to us. He wants us to change. He knows we can change. He has prepared the way for us to change. And he will help us walk in newness of life every step of the way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Turning Away from Incorrect Traditions, with thoughts from Ruth L. Renland, Ed Adams, and Lloyd D. Newell. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.